Welcome to the Hospital Finance Podcast, your go-to source for information and insights that can help you stay ahead of the challenges impacting healthcare finance. And now, the host of the Hospital Finance Podcast, Michael Passanate. Hi, this is Mike Passanate, and welcome back to the Hospital Finance Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Paul Keckley, Managing Editor of the Keckley Report, and a healthcare researcher and widely known industry expert. Paul recently wrote about what he sees coming for healthcare in 2019, and we're happy to have him back on the show to discuss his analysis. Paul, welcome back to the Hospital Finance Podcast. Thank you, Michael. So, Paul, you wrote a a great piece recently uh, that gets into some very uh, deep issues around healthcare, and I want to give you an opportunity to walk us through those. So, um, first off, why don't you tell us about what you think uh, the federal agenda might look like related to healthcare in 2019? Well, at a high level, it will be uh, staging for the 2020 election cycle. So to do that, what the HHS folks with CMS and FDA at their side, along with the Department of Justice, uh, the FTC, and even the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, have to do in a concerted way is to uh, make reforms that reinforce uh, the private sector. They want to direct folks away from this notion that Medicare for all is a good idea. Um, At the same time, they have to um, reduce federal spending going into the 2020 cycle. Uh, which is obviously around Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, federal employee health, military health, and veterans health, so that that uh, doesn't contribute to uh, the already increasing deficit this year. As you know, last year was $780 billion, which was a spike. So that's the big story. How does a, an administration that's Uh, vowed its uh, allegiance on health care to private sector solutions. Uh, How does it navigate this with a Democratic-controlled House of Representatives where budgets originate, a lot of laws originate? Um, And that's going to be kind of the the, uh, tap dance that you'll see play out. And health care, as you know, uh, in the midterm was a big deal, especially to Democrats, to independents, to urban voters, uh, to women. Uh, it just so happened it wasn't as important to Republican voters. So uh, it's going to be an interesting showcase for discussions uh, around pretty dicey issues about health care. And no doubt, let's let's walk through some of the detail that you've outlined in, in your recent post. Um, first off, you talk about Medicare cuts, and, and the second yeah. point is drug costs, and probably to some extent they go hand in hand, don't they? They do. Um, there's obviously uh, bipartisan and popular support for doing something about drug prices uh, at the end of 2018, as you know, uh, companies like Pfizer announced they were raising prices on 41 drugs. And uh, at the same time, the administration uh, announced it wanted 
any advertising of drugs that cost an individual more than $35 a month to carry a price for that uh, on every television ad. So there's just a huge amount of uh, growing belief that the drug industry is kind of beyond the reach of regulators and needs to be reined in. And that's where you see uh, both parties trying to line up. Um, in addition to that, um, you've seen HHS with Alex Azar kind of double down on these uh, alternative payment programs. He, for instance, said all of these accountable care organizations need to take on more risk. You didn't save Medicare enough money. Uh, he recently announced for these uh, bundled payment programs a new program called the uh, BPCI Advanced Model, which essentially does the same. It increases the risk that provider organizations will take in managing bundled payment programs. So essentially, what um, Alex Azar and Seema Verma are uh, really focused on is how do we uh, protect the private sector solution while also cutting federal funding uh, for Medicare and Medicaid, and you can do it through the front door, which is uh, reimbursement cuts in the fee-for-service programs, and you can do it through the back door, through all these shared savings programs, uh, alternative payment programs, and even some of the uh, programs where there's a penalty, like avoidable readmissions or avoidable complications. So, um, you know, the context there, Michael, is pretty straightforward. They've got a not only a 20 trillion dollar uh, net deficit to deal with at a federal level, but the Tax Cut and Jobs Act that was passed in the fourth quarter of 2017 added 1.3 trillion more to that deficit, to that debt. So the Republicans have to come into the 2020 cycle showing that they made uh, a necessary investment in uh, tax reform, but the net effect of that is it's slowing down what the government spends. And just so happens that healthcare is 29% of what the federal government spends. So not surprisingly, uh, cuts across the board in healthcare through the front and back doors is going to be a big part of the story next year. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned uh, Medicaid just a second ago as well in, in yeah. your analysis. And I, I want to get back to that because we're going to cover states in a minute. I think there's, it's going to be a great discussion, but let me, let me just move on to a couple of other points that you, that you made. Um, you talked about opioid addiction in your post. Yeah. I mean, we're, uh, we've come into 2019 with 45 deaths a day. Um, and there's growing sentiment that, um, there need to be uh, some reparation from drug distributors, from drug retailers like CVS, Walgreens, and others. And I think they'll shortly look to prescribers. So uh, from a 
punishment standpoint, I think that's scorched earth. I think uh, state attorneys general will view this as uh, the next version of the tobacco tax, where uh, the public is is spending funds to correct a problem that private industry advantaged, and they'll seek you know reparation. You've seen. Uh, Purdue Pharmaceutical and some others advertise uh, full-page ads in a number of newspapers about their intent to participate in solving the problem going forward. Uh, a lot of the states are probably not going to be satisfied with that. The uh, other dimension of this that will get a lot of attention is um, the solution. How do you uh, correct this uh, pattern of addiction that uh, might in some cases begin innocently enough. Some uh, states and some uh, programs have limited prescriptions to no more than seven days. Um, but then there are other uh, elements of this that are pretty dicey. How do you um, reduce the addictive behavior, what mental health services and what programs are necessary to uh, reduce recidivism, which is a substantial problem. So we've got a number of states that are doing pilot programs around uh, mental health counseling, but it's not a simple problem. And that's where I think the public discussion is going to move from being fairly bipartisan. Yeah, it's a problem we all need to fix to the solution that says maybe the federal government, uh, along with states, have to invest some money in this. And obviously, you go into the election year and you talk about spending. Uh, that's not something that Republicans want to appear to support. So. Uh, that's one to watch for. Paul, you um, then talk about administrative simplification as a priority. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, when you compare the U.S. system with other systems of the world, um, our total administrative costs all in uh, run about 25% of what we spend in healthcare, and that's all the administrative paperwork and the staffing and the systems that we use to uh, administer the program at a local, state, and national level. Other systems of the world uh, have administrative costs that are uh, anywhere from six to nine percent of their expenditures. And um, a lot of folks make comparisons to Medicare, which they say has an, an administrative cost of 1%, which is a misnomer. Medicare is an automatic uh, enrollment. They don't have marketing expense, and they don't have a number of the other expenses that uh, private payers have. So realistically, Medicare costs is 6 to 7% a year to administer other countries of the world, six to nine percent, but our system is up to 25 percent. So uh, there are a lot of ideas here. One is uh, standardization of um, things like billing, credit collections, credentialing of providers, even 
of standardizing how we define uh, a disease. It, you'd find it uh, almost fascinating but uh, unfortunate that uh, weight management or obesity or overweightness uh, can be defined differently in each sector of the industry and it can be defined differently by uh, insurance plans. So uh, there are the, the solution in administrative simplification is standardization, uh, technology in place of people uh, so that we're uh, not as dependent on headcount. We've got 21 million people that work in this industry. Uh, it's the biggest employer of any industry in the country. And about 20% uh, of that is administrative headcount. And then a third, which is probably more uh, controversial, is the, the, the system will move more toward uh, consolidation of payers. Uh, we're a pluralistic system. We have Medicare and Medicaid, and they're about uh, a third of the marketplace of people that have insurance. We have private insurers that cover 155 million. We've got an individual insurance market, and then we've got another 10% that go without insurance. So because we're pluralistic, we have duplicated administrative cost that gets you into this dicey political discussion of Medicare for all or a single payer system, which uh, objectively is why other systems of the world have a lower administrative cost. They tend to evolve from a single payer platform instead of uh, things like uh, a doctor will spend about $30,000 a year uh, to get approvals from the various insurance companies that they have to interact with. So you take a lot of that cost out. So it's a, it's a tricky issue, uh, but nonetheless, it's one where there's low hanging fruit. There's a lot of opportunity to reduce unnecessary cost. Uh, indeed, Hu huge spend there. And um, you mentioned uh, regarding appropriations that uh, you predict veterans health to be a major issue uh, when yeah. the next Congress convenes. Well, tell us, tell us what's going on there. Well, <laughs> this one is interesting because uh, the uh, Veterans Administration, which is the second biggest line item in the federal budget after uh, you take Medicare, Medicaid, and I guess Social Security you have to include. Um, and there's been an effort on the part of uh, the administration to uh, provide veterans more private sector choices uh, in uh, using the Veterans Administration's 170 some odd hospitals, 1200 outpatient centers, and so on. And the uh, concept of that was to give veterans choice and it actually was initially funded as the Veterans Choice Act but it ran out of money so uh, funding was reauthorized last year under a legislation called the uh, uh, VA Mission Act 
which was to fund uh, access to private providers where veterans didn't have choices or they had to wait too long or they lived too far from a certain uh, veterans facility. That's very controversial because uh, the veterans themselves um, believe that privatizing the VA might actually hurt more than it helps. And the cost associated with uh, privatizing, if you will, uh, the VA are all over the place. Uh, you'll see estimates ranging from 20 billion a year to, I've seen one that said it would be another 80 billion a year. So no one really knows what it's gonna cost or how it's gonna be impacting. But um, it's going to get a lot of attention, uh, if for no other reason than the president has said, um, you know, I'm the veterans president. Uh, he authorized additional funding for the VA uh, in his first budget, the uh, FY18 uh, budget that we're in right now, or just finished. Um, when he cut just about every other uh, cabinet level department, so. Uh, this one's going to keep getting a lot of attention, and the veterans organizations are going to be uh, very vocal. Um, and I think this is one where there's a lot of political risk um, for the administration. So I think it's going to be walking on eggshells. Paul, you um, you also um, get into some of the circuit court and Supreme Court decisions <laughs> that are that are yeah. coming up that are likely to impact health care. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Well, my goodness, the big one obviously is down in Texas where there's a challenge to the severability of the individual mandate. In other words, if, if in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act we eliminated the individual mandate, doesn't that render then the entire Affordable Care Act moot? Is it no longer uh, law? Uh, and that will be the big one people watch. But then you've got uh, issues at, at the circuit court level ranging from uh, things like the work requirement that in at least eight states, um, the Medicaid administrators are seeking to require that there be a minimum work requirement. We've got the standards. Uh, We've got medical malpractice beginning to pop up again. We've got uh, access to uh, abortion services and beyond. This is going to be a state level uh, series of skirmishes that circuit that work themselves through the circuit courts. And um, there's likelihood that a couple of these may end up uh, at the Supreme Court level, where obviously the president now has two of his appointees. Uh, in the first 30 some odd uh, cases on the SCOTUS docket this fall, uh, there are really none that point to health care. But in the last half of the year, uh, we expect there will be a couple. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of things to play out in the coming months. Yeah. Yeah. Paul, let's um let's pivot and and talk about states. Um, right before the podcast started, you and I were talking about um, the interplay between what the federal government's doing and what the states are going to be looking at. And you had some interesting 
points of view on there, and certainly it's it's a place where uh, there's you know, Medicaid plays a, a huge role. So tell us tell us what's going on there. Well, a central premise of the uh, current administration is that you should default to the states on as much as you can. And we've seen that in deliberation about what constitutes a qualified health plan. Well, let's let the state determine that. Um, They've been very uh, supportive of this notion of block grants on Medicaid funding to the states and let the governors determine how care should be delivered to Medicaid populations and so on. So given that central premise, uh, the one on which there's uh, more attention right now is Medicaid expansion. Turns out that in the midterm, uh, in the governor's races, the Democrats picked up uh, six seats. And it, it appears that in at least three states, that were red already, Utah, Nebraska, and Idaho. And then in these uh, new governors coming in, a couple of states that hadn't um, expanded their Medicaid programs, if you'll recall, uh, in Maine, the legislature approved it, but the governor refused to sign it, things like that. So we're going to have probably 900,000 additional Medicaid enrollees uh, as a result of states that have acted. And that then is good news, bad news. If you're a governor, uh, you know that most people agree that you should expand. There's widespread support for the notion of expansion. But how you manage those populations is politically risky. Uh, Medicaid the Medicaid population is not a stable population. There's lots of churn in and out of the program. Uh, the Medicaid population is unusually uh, dependent on uh, primary care services uh, for pediatricians, family medicine, mental health services, women's health, where there's already a shortage. So what most states have done is outsource their Medicaid programs, uh, all or in part, to private managed care organizations. And you'll hear names like Centene and Molina and, and a lot of others. Well, that's been a great way for governors to say, uh, this stuff's complicated, so I've brought in these private folks to do it. But it turns out that... Um, these uh, Medicaid managed care operators have made a lot of money. And a lot of people are saying, uh, shouldn't the state have been more, uh, you know, aggressive in contracting with these folks? And is the profit they're taking away money that we could be spending on opioid addiction programs and things like that? So, it's complicated, and that to me um, is going to be an important story to watch. Uh, we had uh, 36 uh, governor's races, and I think we'll have another 
12 or so in the next cycle, maybe more. So this was a big one for looking at state houses. The next one's going to be important to watch, but um, the state legislators and the governor's offices are, uh, it's not so much um, clear as to how they'll navigate through what the administration sees as an opportunity to take on more control of health care. And the states have a tremendous amount of things to do when it uh, when it comes to health care, things like uh, how insurance uh, coverage is composed, oversight, as you mentioned, uh, treatment of, of opioid addiction. Um, what do you see coming in 2019 for the states uh, in, in those areas? Well, I think they'll address uh, workforce issues right up front because that's the means to the end. Uh, By that I mean states control through these licensing boards um, whether a nurse practitioner can diagnose and treat, for instance, or the scope of practice for a pharmacist. retail pharmacies uh, regulated at a state level. So the workforce that might increase access to health services, including opioid addiction and other, uh, is something that states can address pretty quickly. What they run afoul of in doing that is the conventional uh, gatekeepers that want to maintain those controls. So. Uh, the state hospital associations want to be uh, protective of their interest in their doctors. They want to make sure that uh, you can't just put up a program next door and cherry pick the commercially insured and leave them in their emergency rooms to treat the uninsured. The medical society doesn't want to see nurses get more authority. Uh, So it's going to be a, I think around workforce issues, you'll see a lot of these things surface. I think, secondly, you'll see um, there's a belief that um, the combination of health and human services programs, in other words, all these social determinants, what some states reference as welfare programs, that those need to be better integrated at the market and the state level. So you're seeing states uh, initiate pilots where health systems take on more responsibility for these social services programs so that we're addressing food insecurity, uh, housing, social isolation, uh, and even uh, financial distress. That's a big deal. Uh, the, the degree to which we've evolved in our country's health system to one set of services that we've called welfare through the years that support low-income folks, and then a separate set of services for those that are sick or injured, and we call those health services, is uniquely an American problem. If you look at other systems of the world, they spend substantially more for these social services programs for their underserved, and they spend substantially less on health services 
largely because uh, they don't pay the same uh, high prices for drugs, for a day in the hospital, for specialty care that we pay. So that's a state issue. That's what you're going to see states uh, grapple with as they try to bring their budgets home. And they've got a lot of other things. I mean, this is uh, always going to be uh, fertile turf for the discussion of uh, limits on uh, medical liability and some of these other standard issues. But uh, workforce and kind of looking at the connection of health and human services or health and social services is going to be uh, big. Paul, at the end of your article, you had some great takeaways. Uh, could you explain those to us? Well, I'm, I'm looking at this thinking um, you, you can't really imagine something as big and complicated as healthcare uh, not being front and center as we go into campaign 2020 and beyond. Um, and I found myself after kind of looking through the litany of issues at the federal and state level, uh, wondering how in the world does someone that, you know, works 40, 50 hours a week or raises a family, uh, understand what to do, how to navigate the system. Cause we really don't have a system. We, we have a collection of sectors that have coexisted because the industry keeps growing and everybody's been able to do pretty well. So I'm, uh, I'm looking at this through the lens of a healthcare guy and looking at long-term. Uh, we will not uh, fix the intrinsic problems of the system uh, because they don't fit neatly within our election cycles. We're going to have to look at healthcare, I think, beyond the election cycles. And that's not something that I uh, think we're uh, of a mind to do. So I'm hopeful, but, uh, you know, I think it's going to take uh, the private sector to step in and say, uh, to be, to, to achieve this future state where we balance profit and purpose, where we have recognized that clinical care has shifted from facility-based services to other sites, and where individuals take on more responsibility for their health, uh, I'm not sure the political process is going to get us to that. So that's kind of what, that was my reflection. And uh, it sounds, sounds like a well-informed one, uh, Paul. Certainly we'll have a, um, a link to this article so you can read uh, more extensively about Paul's analysis uh, right from our website. But if Paul, uh, if our listeners wanted to learn more about you and what you do, where can they go? Um, just www.paulkeckley.com. Excellent. Well, Paul, uh, great analysis. Always enjoy talking to you. I want to thank you again for coming by and spending some time with us on the Hospital Finance Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Always enjoy it. If you have a topic that you'd like us to discuss on the Hospital Finance Podcast, or if you'd like to be a guest, drop us a line at update at Bessler.com. This concludes today's episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. 
For show notes and additional resources to help you protect and enhance revenue at your hospital, visit Bessler.com forward slash podcasts. The Hospital Finance Podcast is a production of Bessler. Smart about revenue, tenacious about results.